Good morning. You know, we often are thinking of our experience during worship. Have you ever thought of the experience of God while we worship Him? And, and the pleasure He draws from our worship. Thank you for joining with us today. Well, take your Bibles and turn in your Old Testament to 2 Kings 6 as we continue our study there. Page 292 in our Bibles. This morning we study the account of an amazing victory that God gave to the united forces of Israel and Judah. An amazing victory, I think. It's not as amazing as it could have been. What God does in giving the victory certainly gets five stars. But the people he blessed with victory, I don't know, maybe one or two. By the time we get to the end of the story today, you're going to feel a bit disappointed, even though God's side won. That's intentional. You'll feel a little bit like you do if, you, if you're cheering for your team and the game ends in a tie. Or you pass the course with a D. It's kind of a letdown. We want to talk about why. Because the reason why it was a disappointing win, to put it that way, is because of an ungodly partnership. A partnership between godly King Jehoshaphat and ungodly King Joram. We need to grapple with the fact that as believers in Christ, we are different. Have we accepted that we are different than the world? That we have different goals to honor Christ, to live according to God's values, and that will not mesh well with the world around us. And as a result, we must be very careful, discerning, when we should or should not team up with, form alliances with, the unsaved world. In the opening verse, we meet the two kings. Joram, son of Ahab, became king of Israel in Samaria in the 18th year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. And he, that's Joram, reigned 12 years So just to return to our map a little bit for review again, the nation of Israel had been divided after the reign of Solomon, about some 80 years by the time we get to this account. And Joram is the king of Israel, the name specifically of the northern contingent. And Jehoshaphat is the king of the kingdom of Judah, more the tribe of Judah, uh, capital in Jerusalem instead of Samaria. Joram is the son of Ahab and Jezebel, if you know some of their story from 1 Kings, both very evil people. Um, His brother, Joram's brother, was Ahaziah the king that we met in chapter 1 of 2 Kings, who had that brief little two-year reign before he died as a part of God's judgment, it seems, died of his injuries from a fall, and that's how Joram became king. Let's read about him. He, Joram, did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord, but not as his father and mother had done. In other words, not as bad. 
He got rid of the sacred stone of Baal that his father had made. Good for you. Nevertheless, he clung to the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit. He did not turn away from them. You know, we like to have clean lines. There's a bad guy, there's a good guy, and sometimes it gets mixed. He was not as bad as he could be, and yet he is described with this little phrase that we'll see in the book of Kings as we go along, pretty much enables us to understand who's a believer, who's not, to put it in our New Testament terms. He did that which was evil, just not as evil as his mom and dad. He got rid of the bales. Well, that's good because he hopefully learned the hard way how helpless, worthless Baal is because of the Mount Carmel thing when Elijah had called down fire and the 450 prophets of Baal were executed. If he didn't learn it there, he should have learned it from his brother when Elijah called down fire from heaven on the 102 troops in chapter 1 because Ahaziah had gone to seek Baal. So he's given up Baal. Kind of forced, I suppose. But he didn't give up idolatry because, as we saw last week, the sins of Jeroboam, that first king who split the kingdom, the sin of Jeroboam was these two golden calves he had set up in the northern kingdom to keep people from leaving the country to go worship. And he said, oh, these are your gods, Israel. Of course, he lied. He was perpetuating. And so Jehosh- I mean, Joram was perpetuating the lie of his predecessor a few steps back, Joram, because the true God of Israel is never represented by an idol. So he clung to those things. But he avoided some. <laughs> the principle is that godliness is never defined by the sins we avoid. That's a, that's a lousy way to measure godliness. Well, you don't do that. And sometimes, maybe even as believers, we can be tempted to excuse or defend ourselves because, well, we don't, you know, we don't, murder, steal, or commit adultery, so, you know, we're not that bad. Remember your identity in Christ. You, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. Don't, don't lower the bar of, of measuring yourself by comparing it to what others do, because you are called as a, as, 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 as a temple of the Holy Spirit to have love and joy and peace and, and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. These are These are supernatural qualities to which God has called you. So Joram has a problem politically. Verse 4. Now Misha, king of Moab, it's a neighboring country, raised sheep, and he had to supply the king of Israel with 100,000 lambs and with the wool of 100,000 rams. I assume that's annual. But after Ahab... Joram's dad died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So at that time, King Joram set out from Samaria. So he's, he's got a rebellious nation that had been paying him this tribute. He set out from Samaria and mobilized all Israel. He also sent this message to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah. The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to fight against Moab? I will go with you, he replied. I am as you are. My people is your people. My horses is your horses. By what route shall we attack, he asked. Through the desert of Edom, he answered. And suddenly, 
They are teammates. Godly Jehoshaphat, described as godly elsewhere, we'll see, and ungodly Joram. Um, In ancient times, when you defeated a nation, you didn't necessarily take over and try to rule it hands-on. You rather forced it to somehow be enslaved or pay tribute to you. And uh, because of your military superiority, you could force them to pay up. And so Ahab had done that, and now that Ahab was gone, Moab was gambling, kind of, that his sons couldn't keep that grip on them. So Joram, sinful king of northern Israel, wants help. What does Jehoshaphat want when he gets this invitation to join him? Because Moab was not Jehoshaphat's problem. What does Jehoshaphat want? It seems he wants the approval of his peers, the king in the northern area. I am with you. I am as you are. My people as your people. My horses as your horse. At first glance, this might seem like this is a grand reunion of the divided kingdom. Oh, yay, they're all coming together. It's not a grand reunion. Because Joram is evil, and he's still pushing idolatry. The worship of those two golden calves. Ethnically, Joram in the north, Jehoshaphat in the south are identical. They're Jewish people. Ethnically, spiritually, they're vastly different. In fact, Joram would have more in common spiritually with the the nation he was fighting, Moab, than he had with his new ally, Jehoshaphat. And we might read this chapter and we wouldn't maybe know that it looks so bad or like it's the real problem, but if, if you read 1 Kings about Jehoshaphat, and you read 2 Chronicles, which retells the story. There's like three chapters about Jehoshaphat in 2 Chronicles. You discover that he had this, this, this spiritual weakness, this pattern of longing for approval from other kings and making alliances with them. Let's take a look at some of this godly but compromising activity. The good news was that He is described in those chapters with phrases like he did what was right. He's a believer. He removed idolatry. Yes. In fact, he taught God's law. In fact, there's kind of a pattern in his life of of some ungodliness and then some repentance, gratefully, when you get to the end of his story. He did a lot of good things. That's on the plus side of the ledger, but on the minus side, he gave his son to marry the pagan daughter of Ahab. It was a political alliance. And when you read 2 Chronicles 21.6, it says that his son, Jehoram, later did what was evil like the kings of Israel. Why? Because of the wife that he married. So dad got him into that, and the result was spiritual disaster. Chapter 18 in 2 Chronicles talks about how he partied, feasted with Ahab, and then they went out and fought this battle together. It was Ahab's last battle. That was the one where God, God judged Ahab, and Ahab was killed. That didn't turn out well. 
And then son Ahaziah that we met earlier, we're told that, that one time Jehoshaphat said, hey, let's do this business thing together. And they got these ships and they're going to do this trade thing. And God put a kibosh on that and brought a storm and destroyed the ships. And after these things had failed, these alliances, guess what we find him doing in chapter 3? Making another alliance. Sure, let's go fight Moab together. Was it a problem spiritually? The author of Chronicles says, recording the, uh, the conversation of Jehu, a prophet, to Jehoshaphat, should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord? Because of this, the wrath of the Lord is on you. There is, however, some good in you, for you have rid the land of Asherah poles and you have set your heart on seeking God. Do you, do you get that feeling of kind of like it's a tie? It's not very spiritually satisfying at all. The principle is that God's people sometimes choose partners foolishly. Why do you do this, Jehoshaphat? Seems to be the longing for approval. I, I, yes, I want, to be, I want to be a cooperative king. I want to go with you to battle. How much, how much does the desire for approval drive you? To, to be like someone in the world that you perceive as successful. they got some little slice of something that you admire. And then they invite you to join them in something. You kind of almost feel powerless because you are so flattered that they would ask you. These previous alliances show us that Jehoshaphat didn't learn. And that's why the coming victory actually didn't even feel like victory. The, the alliance thing gets even worse. Look at the first line of verse 9. So the king of Israel, that's Joram, set out with the king of Judah, that's Jehoshaphat, and enter the third party, the king of Edom. Three kings, almost Christmassy. When you compromise spiritually already, what's one more? And it becomes an even more complicated spiritual state of this alliance because really there is like no difference between the king of Edom and the king of Moab. They, they had almost identical worship systems of pagan idolatry. But Jehoram and Jehoshaphat decide to tack on the pagan Edomites to the team. Middle of verse 9. So, so, so the military... Uh, battle begins, or the, 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 the path to it begins. After a roundabout march of seven days, the army had no more water for themselves or for their animals with them. You'd have to have horses for the chariots and animals to slaughter to feed the thousands of people. What, exclaimed the king of Israel, Joram, has the Lord called us three kings together only to hand us over to Moab? But, Jehor but Jehoshaphat asked, is there no prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of the Lord through him? An officer of the king of Israel answered, Elisha, son of Shaphat, is here. He used to pour water on the hands of Elijah. He, he, was, one of the, he was the assistant. And we saw the transition in chapter 2 last week of going from the prophet Elijah to Elisha. Jehoshaphat said, the word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Notice in verse 10 that Joram 
says, oh no, the Lord has called us together against Moab and he's going to hand us over to him. What? God didn't call this group together. Joram called this group together. When something goes wrong in the world, sometimes people who have no interest in God often still blame God. That's when they think of him. Um, the news has you know mass shootings and tragedies and pandemics or whatever. And believers rightly respond with compassion and prayer. And sometimes we are criticized because Oh, if you believe in God or believe in prayer, then why did he allow this to happen? That's kind of what Joram did. Blame God when something goes wrong. I hope we understand, as those who believe and follow Christ, that crime and tragedy and illness and terrorism are the result of sin. And sin brings death. And sinners unleashed can do horrific things to each other. And so we do pray. Pray that God would, would uh, calm, that God would secure and bring safety. Well, now the conflict develops in verse 11 that always happens. Inevitably happens when Christians try to team up too closely with the world. And that conflict comes when there's a problem. Where do you go for help? Who do you seek for help? Is there no prophet of God that we may inquire the Lord through him? Good thing, at least, Jehoshaphat speaks up. Although this is almost verbatim what Jehoshaphat had said back earlier when he made an alliance with Joram's dad, Ahab, 1 Kings 22.5. He didn't learn from his mistake that ended in Ahab's death. And the principle is that partnership with unbelievers brings conflict about how to solve problems. There are many ways that we mingle and work in the world. We're in the world. And it's okay. In fact, it's good. Because you and I are meant to have an influence on our world. We're salt. We're light, Jesus said. But sometimes we get entangled too closely in partnership where we're going to experience this tension of how do you handle problems? God's way, seeking him, or the world's way? One of those, obviously, is the partnership of, of marriage. Because marriage is a permanent partnership. And if, if you are in a somewhat spiritually mixed marriage, you can rest assured it is God's will for you. And, and God will use you in that relationship. But if you are on the other side of marriage, and uh, unmarried and desiring marriage, a huge reason why you want to only date, only marry a believer in Christ who is fully committed to Christ is because it is a partnership in which you will make the biggest, deepest, most personal decisions ever. Because you're going to face everything with a partner at your side. Money, jobs, time, time priorities, parenting. It's, it's all something you have to do together. 
And as you come to that place, you do in life together, it suddenly won't matter how cute, how handsome, how athletic, how rich that person was or how they made you feel at one time. What will matter is, how do you handle the challenges of life? Because it's inevitably going to lead to hurt and conflict when one is trying to seek the Lord and one is not. On the other hand, there is no better path to deeper intimacy than going through the stuff of life together and seeking him and his help together. 2 Corinthians 6.14, Paul says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. It's in a context where it's kind of hard to say, well, what's he mean? And you could, we could debate, is he talking about marriage? Is he talking about business partnerships? Is he talking about friends? Is he talking about social gathering? Just take it at face value and realize that the more decisions you need to make jointly with someone, the more important it is to be spiritually on the same page. So we credit Jehoshaphat for insisting on going to inquire of God. But it created this kind of a strange situation. Do you notice that in verse 12? Or thir- uh, 12, yeah. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to see him, to see Elijah. This is a strange roomful. You have the godly king Jehoshaphat, the ungodly but not as bad as he could be, Joram, and the totally pagan king of Edom going down to see the godly king or godly prophet Elisha. Kind of sound like a start of a joke almost. But uh, they walk into a meeting. How's that going to go? Verse 13. Elisha said to the king of Israel, what do we have to do with each other? He gets it, right? What do we have to do with each other? Go to the prophets of your father and the the prophets of your mother, Ahab and Jezebel. This is is a, a prophet's sarcasm. No, the king of Israel answered, because it was the Lord who called us three kings together to hand us over to Moab. He comes back with that line of blaming God. Elisha said, As surely as the Lord Almighty lives whom I serve, if I did not have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, I would not even look at you or notice you. But now, bring me a harpist. And while the harpist was playing, the hand of the Lord came upon Elisha. Let's stop there. So go to to the prophets that your mom and dad pursued. Be like them. And Joram knows Elisha has him on that. He knows better than to trust God after all that fire came down from heaven. And so he at least claims to somehow have a relationship with God. But then he get, there he goes again, blaming God, first of all, for the lack of water, and now blaming God for, for leading him into a losing battle. Joram, who are you fooling? You're the one who initiated this battle because of what? Because of money. Because the, the, the mutton and the wool wasn't coming in anymore. And so you called this group together that's facing disaster because you're out of water. Elisha doesn't buy his spiritual pretense and says, if I didn't have respect for the presence of Jehoshaphat, I wouldn't even look at you or notice you. In other words, Joram, I'm not here for you. I'm here for Jehoshaphat. So in spite of Jehoshaphat's spiritual weaknesses, 
for joining this alliance, God is actually going to bless the alliance. Isn't he gracious? Isn't he gracious? Do, do you, sometimes unbelievers are blessed because of us. Do you realize God might be blessing your company with whatever unbelievers and unbiblical things because you are there. If, if you are in a, a spiritually mixed marriage, do you realize how God can bless your family because of you? In Genesis 18, rewinding some years, right? Abraham pled with God to spare this wicked city of Sodom. Why did Abraham want God to spare Sodom? Because his nephew Lot was there. And so he prayed and said, Oh God, if, if there are 50 righteous people in Sodom, will you spare the city? And God said, Yes. And Abraham, a little more honestly, is calculating. He says, Lord, how about 45? It's, a, it's a, almost a humorous passage. How about 40? How about, how about 30? Lord, how about 20? How about 10? Lord, 10. How about if, there, if there's 10 righteous people in Sodom, will you spare it? And God said, Yes. There weren't, there were three. And God brought his judgment on Sodom. But notice the grace of God he would have spared even Sodom. Is God still sparing and blessing America, made me think, because of you and me? If so, the best thing we can do for our country is to live godly. Um, God certainly hates much of what he sees in our nation there. The perversion, the crime, the blasphemy. It's amazing America hasn't faced greater judgment. Your pursuit of God matters more than winning at the ballot box because God can bless a nation when there isn't a majority. God is that good, that powerful. And so Rather than putting our trust in the next election and the next election, let's pursue God and see how God blesses, sustains our nation, our families. Maybe because of you, God will bless your company, your neighborhood, the groups that you are a part of that are a mixture of, of the world and, and believers and and God's going to use you as a source of blessing. But even as we do maybe experience that, let's be humble enough to realize it's not really because we're so holy. Just as, as God would bless Joram because of Jehoshaphat, he can bless the people around us because of whom we are connected to and we are connected to Christ. So let's not get too full of ourselves if we experience blessing thinking how holy we are. It is our connection to Christ. And that's the only reason that God is able to bless. Bring me a harpist. <laughs> Verse 15. And while the harpist was playing, the hand of the Lord came upon Elisha, and he said, This is what the Lord says. Make this valley full of ditches, for this is what the Lord says. You will see neither wind nor rain, yet this valley will be filled with water, and you and your cattle and your other animals will drink. 
I love this. This is an easy thing in the eyes of the Lord. He will also hand Moab over to you. You will overthrow every fortified city, every major town. You will cut down every good tree, stop up all the springs, and ruin every good field with stones. In other words, you'll have total victory. Bring me a harpist. Fascinating that Jehoshaphat, or rather Elisha, would ask for music to help him be in touch with God. We don't sing here to entertain ourselves. Musical worship is designed by God to be a means by which truth penetrates us on an even deeper level sometimes. And I hope God uses it that way for you. That's why the the Psalms are actually songs that they sang. Feel free to hum when you read the Psalms. New Testament, sing and make melody in your hearts to the Lord. This isn't filler when we sing. This is, this is what we came to do. And as the harpist played, I, I can almost picture like music in the background, a little bit of a soundtrack to the rest of this. God unveiled the future. And he said, fill the ditches or valleys with water. That's the first thing God's going to do. Gonna, you need water? I'll give you water. But what you really need is victory, and I'll give you victory as well. I don't think when, when he says, uh, make the valley full of ditches, I don't think this is a command that they should go dig ditches, because the answer is there already the next morning. There wasn't time to dig ditches. I think it's a little bit more like a creative statement when God said, let there be light. He said, let there be water in the ditches. He's declaring it to be, in fact, he says, neither wind nor rain. God did not need rain to make water. He didn't the first time. He created water. And in fact, it was an easy thing. Piece of cake. Forgot to create water. No problem. What we learn about God, because that's the point, right, is that if ever we are lacking in supply and praying and God is not answering, it's not because he can't. So if we're not getting the supply we expect, God's doing something else, and we can assume as his children something better. But it's not because he can't. He gave them water, then he gave them victory over every Moabite city in town. And it was just this, this kind of this scorched earth thing. It's like, it's like, a, like a bomb went off by the time they're, they're done. Why would God do this? Isaiah 15 and 16, almost 100 years later, but... God explains himself through Isaiah that he punished Moab because of their arrogance and their idolatry. Watch out for arrogance and idolatry. But then God's going to give this miraculous victory in such a way that no one can take credit. Not godly Jehoshaphat, not evil, but not as bad as it could be Joram, nor the pagan Edom king. Verse 20, the next morning about the time for offering the sacrifice, there it was, water flowing from the direction of Edom. And the land was filled with water. So suddenly, cattle can all drink. Everybody fills up their jugs. Everybody's good. Now all the Moabites had heard that the kings had come to fight against them. So every man, Moabite, young and old, who could bear arms, was called up and stationed on the border. When they got up early in the morning, the sun was shining on the water. 
To the Moabites across the way, the water looked red like blood. That's blood, they said. Those kings must have fought and slaughtered each other. Now to the plunder, Moab. But when the Moabites came to the camp of Israel, maybe it's that one contingent, the Israelites rose up and fought them until they fled. And the Israelites invaded the land and slaughtered the Moabites. They destroyed the towns, and each man threw a stone on every good field until it was covered. They stopped up all the springs and cut down every good tree. Only Kir Hareseth, one city in the south, was left with its stones in place, but armed, men armed with slings surrounded it and attacked it as well. So at this point, the, the battle is still going. It's just in the mop-up stage. They're almost done. God had given him this amazing victory. Plenty of water that blessed the Israel-Judah-Edom alliance, but the water appeared to be blood <clears throat> to the Moabites. Now, whether it was a reflection of the morning sun, whether it was a, a miraculous you know, filter that they, they looked through and it all looked like blood, we don't know specifically, but suddenly they go charging recklessly right into the teeth of the Israelite army. And, and, and maybe it's for the benefit of some of the Israelite soldiers. Many of them came from places where there was a mix and, and some did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and some did what was evil in the northern kingdom. And, and, and some of them had to all discover the preeminence, the supremacy of God and that he had given them the victory. And they have a full victory and they get to this southern major city of Kir Hareseth. And even there, they are winning, but it turns into a disappointing win. When the king of Moab, verse 26, saw that the battle had gone against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through to the king of Edom, but they failed, so he attacks the Edomite contingent. And even then, the Edomites are winning against Moab. Then, verse 27, he took his firstborn son, who was to succeed him as king, and offered him as a sacrifice on the city wall. The fury against Israel was great. They withdrew and returned to their own land. So Israel's winning even when the king of Moab brings out his elite soldiers, the 700 skilled swordsmen. But then something very, very strange happens on the wall of this city where evidently the king of Moab is holed up and very desperate. He commits the ultimate atrocity that was known to take place in these pagan occultic religions and cultures. Child sacrifice. Somehow thinking that by killing their own child, they would get God's attention and get what they want. How this could ever become a temptation to God's people Israel is a little bit, takes a stretch of our imagination, but clearly God warned it could happen, but it must not. When he said, don't imitate these religions, Leviticus 18, do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech, for you must not profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. Molech was the God worshipped by the neighboring Ammonites, which was basically a, a parallel, a mirror image of the Moabites who worshipped Chemosh. They both had the same basic religion. Or Deuteronomy 12, 
warning as they would come into the land, do, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to the gods. Somehow this was a temptation even to Israelites, but a severe warning. And so somehow through satanic lies, People killed children because they were so desperate. Somewhat fittingly today you have this insert. Once a year we do this on what is called the um, Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. Commemorating that, uh, sadly, the uh, decision made January 22 of 1973, 49 years ago now this week, when the Supreme Court decision legalized abortion. I hope we never get used to the tragic reality that untold numbers of babies are killed intentionally each year, put to death in the womb. We must have a true compassionate concern for the desperate situation that many women face. And that's why there are Christian organizations uh, that, are, that are funded and that will support and care for women, helping them bring a child to birth and, in many cases, to adoption. If there's anyone hearing this right now that finds himself in a desperate situation while a baby is growing within you, please reach out to someone here. Let us help or let us find someone who can help you. While we understand that desperation in small sense, we can never, as Christians, be anything except opposed to the satanic lie that abortion's okay. Satan is said to be the father of lies. Jesus said that. And it seems like one of the huge lies that has swept our land over these decades has been that somehow, in certain situations, killing an unborn child is the right choice. God offers true, full forgiveness for those who have made that choice, but he never gives his approval of that choice. The king of Moab that day killed his child. What happened next is the part that leaves us kind of scratching our heads, but let's try to understand. It says that the fury against Israel was great, and they withdrew and return to their own land. And so the question is, what kind of fury was it that went out against Israel that day? Here's the choices. Was it demonic fury? It's kind of an interesting option because we know that they were worshiping idols. Idols are empowered by demons. But I don't really want to give Satan credit for somehow pushing back what God was actually trying to accomplish. I don't think it's demonic fury. So some have said, well, maybe it's God's fury, because indeed God hate, hated what happened here, but it doesn't seem that God would then you know, cripple his own cause of giving his people victory. Which leaves us really with human fury. And it seems to be that maybe it was that the Moabites were so enraged by this terrible act that took place in public by their king on the wall that they, they come at Israel with this, this wild fury that gives them victory, kind of, at the end. 
chases them back. Could be that the Israelites were so appalled at what they saw, it kind of stopped them in their tracks and they turned and ran. But if they did, it was because of fear. Because whether the Israelites were fearing false gods or whether they were fearing the, the newly empowered Moabite army, it is the reason an army withdraws is because of fear when they don't quite finish the job. Application would be something like this. When we're not fully trusting God, we will easily fear evil. Evil efforts against us. So who do you fear? What do you fear? Why do you fear? For 3,000 years about, we've been encouraged by Psalm 23 that when the Lord's our shepherd, we don't need to fear Fear, whether it's supply or even going through the valley of the shadow of death, because he is with us. So who do you fear? People who don't like you? People who don't like our country? People who oppose Christian values or seem to take away our freedoms or persecute us? Who do we fear? Do we, do we trust God or do we just say that we do? Wait on the Lord is found so many times because we need it so many times. I imagine Israelites basically slinking back into their towns with the kind of disappointed winners. Kind of like just barely passing a class. God allowed them to win, but not a decisive, complete win. Why? It seems to go back to this unwise partnership that the godly king Jehoshaphat made. You know, it's not always a clear thing to know who we should befriend, bond with, partner with when it's too close. We live in the world and we have many relationships, good relationships, necessary ones. Spiritually, we're called to reach our world. That's that we do. So we need good friendships. But we're going to need discernment to know when a partnership or a bond is spiritually unwise. So let's try to think through just a little bit of discernment. How do we know if it's an unwise or unwise partnership? I think the most obvious question is to ask, who's influencing whom? The relationship, that's why it's kind of not subjective, but it's a spectrum of answers because if you're in a relationship where you are able to influence them and you know that God is using you, then that might be where you need to be. I'm not talking about some of these permanent relationships, but we need to be out in the world. But are they influencing us the wrong way instead? And what kind of values are guiding the decisions if we have to make decisions together? Or do you have to kind of like push ourselves, suddenly check with God, you know, like Jehoshaphat did? And finally, and this might be the, the most important one, what motives are driving me into this relationship or bond? It's a, it's a heart check. What is, what's going on in me? What motives make me want this relationship? So let's look at a few of those motives that would be questionable, right? The first one, I think, is what Jehoshaphat 
faced his approval. We long for unbelievers to like us and admire us. We do. So many people in the world are so good at stuff that we, we'd like them to appreciate that we're good at it. And I mean, in, in our career world, there's, there's a lot of that. Will it drive us to a relationship that we should not have? Loneliness, we don't want to be alone, so we form close bonds with those who don't know or love God. So is our fear of loneliness, and it's a, it's a, it's a genuine hurt, right? Is it going to drive us into a, a bond too close with someone who doesn't share our faith? Or then, fun, the world seems to have more fun, so we join them in unwise or sinful things. I mean, this, this is how you entertain yourself, right? You do, this is what you do. And yet, it's, we can know sometimes it's driving us to something that is spiritually harmful, dangerous for us. Money. Our longing for more money can drive us to financial partnerships that ignore biblical principles. We can, we can get ourselves into a commitment where we have to make decisions that might not be fully ethical. Decisions that, that don't honor God in whatever way, and we aren't free because of a business or a financial partnership. And, and sometimes just the basic issue of fear. Instead of waiting on God, we address our fears. You know, do it the world's way. Get ungodly advice. You've got you to force yourself or get revenge or deceit or <clears throat> file a lawsuit. Sue them, you know? And so we... we we start to just think like the world and, and partner with them and solve problems as if we can Google the world's solution for everything. So this passage is calling us instead, don't settle for half victories. Be fully committed, be, be discerning. You are different than the world as a believer in Christ, a follower of Christ. You are different. But if you set your heart on the word of God and the glory of God, you will have wisdom in relationships that you anticipate or in any relationships you already find yourself in. Let's pray he gives us wisdom. Heavenly Father, we are in a world where decisions are hard so much. And you know <clears throat> the hearts of each of us in this room that uh, where we are spiritually, that uh, uh, sometimes we have found ourselves compromising, maybe longing for approval, maybe trying to get ahead, and, and we can be so driven towards what the world says is fun or successful that we like, lose our spiritual bearings. So Lord, just uh, give us such an immersion in understanding you from your word and your values and, and what you love that we don't, we don't start... Uh, loving what you hate or hating what you love. Give us purity as a church. May we have an influence in our neighborhoods with our friends, the people that we love, the people you've called us to serve, but never compromising truth in the process. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.